You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. The place where God helps. There's a name for that. We commemorated it Friday night at our service. That name is what? Can you say it with me? Oh, that's the best of the three services. You guys did great. You're right. Not a word we say often, but it's what we did this past Holy Week. In the spirit of 1 Samuel 7... We collected rocks, and on them we had every person that was here, either last Sunday or Friday. We have some extras if you want to participate this morning at the end of the service as well. Just either note a location or a place or a name or an event that that signified where God helped you. And we brought all those to the base of the place where God helped us with our soul's deepest need, the place where we... Uh, have been fundamentally helped, the most vivid display of God's help, and that is the cross of Christ. Amen? That place, like Psalm 22 shouts out, where He has done it. Remember last week? And so I just want to thank you, first of all, and I want to praise the Lord with you for what He has done to help us. All of these rocks, beautiful commemoration of how God has helped us, amen? And wouldn't we all agree this is where he's helped us the most? Could we thank the Lord and just say amen, shout hallelujah, clap our hands to thank the Lord for his great help on our behalf? Amen, church, amen. I'm so thankful we glory in the cross. Watching those clips, especially that last one, you don't feel like it's a faithful moment when... Your father dies suddenly. I imagine you don't. You feel like Psalm 22, 1. Psalm 22, the end of it, he has done it. We love that, but Psalm 22, 1. My God, why have you forsaken me? What makes and enables someone like Anna Hensel, Sarah, and their family? I think about recently Brenda Miller. She's here at this service. And her family, as they buried her husband and their dad. Or the days recently as well, just a little while ago, and losing their strong, young son. Think about the Dunkersons and their little baby boy. And and some of you, I've heard this week even, of going back to places where you're from to say goodbye to family members. Maybe even here locally, you're having to deal with death in a certain way. What enables someone in a moment when you and they feel like, wow, this is a moment of being forsaken what enables that person to see that instead of a moment when, you, when God has been faithful? Like, what empowers that change? The disciples know about that. For their leader, their Lord, had been dead three days. Not asleep, not taking a nap, and not just wounded. He had been murdered. Crucified. And he was dead. And they were huddled together now, wondering, what do we do next? Do we go back to fishing? Do we go back to the RRS, the Roman Revenue Service, and collect taxes from these Jews? (laughs) Maybe we go back to carpentry. After all, it it appears the three-year evangelistic adventure was over. And their leader was dead. But what moved them from seeing the cross in the tomb not as a last stop, but as a first step? 
What enabled them to see that place where it seemed like all was lost and forsaken to where suddenly it was the very foundation of their faith moving forward? I'll share with you precisely what it is that carried them and that what carries you, what carries us. I'll share with you precisely exactly what it is. It's two verses in a messianic psalm. It's chapter 16. You've probably never heard an Easter message from these two verses. But this is precisely what carried the disciples and will carry us. Read it with me. Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Together, church. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Here's why God will not abandon His children. Because God did not abandon His Son. You're a layman and you'll agree, but you're probably wondering this right now. Todd, I, I like that truth. That sounds pretty passionate and pretty definitive. But this is a psalm about David. Like, I'm not connecting the dots here. I am so glad you asked that question. Because this psalm is actually what we would call a messianic psalm. It's a prophetic psalm. And it's not actually about to David, though it was written by David. In fact, we would say it like this at First Family. It's to David, but it looks through David to Christ. It's prophetic, it's poetic, and that's not just my opinion. I'm not just making this up. In fact, let me share with you this psalm, Psalm 16, known as the golden psalm because of its preciousness, uh, was referred to by the two most prominent preachers of the first century. In fact, just a matter of years after the crucifixion and resurrection, in fact, with Peter's case, just a matter of months, After both the crucifixion and resurrection, Peter and then later Paul would actually refer to this passage and tell us who it speaks of. So I can say to you definitively, this is not about David, though he wrote it. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually wrote it about the greater David, about Christ. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I think you'll be very intrigued with this. Let me just read for you Acts 2 and then Acts 13. You'll see the verses behind me so you can follow along. But here's how the two most prominent preachers in the first century, as well as the two most prolific authors of the New Testament, they wrote the bulk of the New Testament. Here's what they said about this chapter and about these verses. Acts 2, Peter's preaching. Let's begin about verse 24. I'll read most of this just straight through. I think it'll make sense to you. Peter says, God raised him up, speaking of Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, who is him? It's Jesus, the one who is not held by the pangs of death. And now he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So my heart is glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will also dwell in hope. You'll not abandon my soul to Hades. Let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. uh, You make me full of gladness with your presence. Here's Peter saying that psalm is actually not about David. It's about Jesus. Look what he says in 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, and there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek here, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tombs with us to this day. So if you think, well, David's writing about himself in Psalm 16. Peter's saying, well, actually, if you think that, he's here. He's corrupting right now. So how can that be the case? 
That's what he's thinking the Jews are thinking. He goes on, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Watch verse 31, clearly speaking here and telling us what the psalm was about. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That's the mysterious doctrine of inspiration that David, a thousand years before Christ would be raised, would write about how God would not let his Holy One see corruption. It's great evidence for the inspiration of Scripture over a period of thousands of years. It's great evidence for the resurrection of Christ that it wasn't a random event. It was a prophesied promise. Peter says, man, he's speaking of Christ. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Psalm 16 draws a straight line to Jesus Christ. But Peter's not a lone voice in that. Turn right, a few more chapters, Acts 13. Here Paul is speaking to Jewish leaders in the synagogue in a in a town known as Antioch, in a different area called Pisidia. Look about verse 32. Paul says, We bring you the good news. Amen on that, right, church? The good news, not a list, not more chores for your spiritual life. In other words, something to proclaim that Jesus has come and died and been raised. He says, We bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has Fulfilled to us their children. Watch this. By what? Say it with me. Raising Jesus. And then he begins to list some psalms. He mentions, mentions Psalm 2. You are my son today. I have begotten you. He goes to the next one. Talks about how we'll give the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 34. The fact that he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He spoke in this way. And then he gets to Psalm 16. Verse 35. Therefore he says in another psalm. You will not let your holy one see corruption. So Paul is appealing to these messianic psalms and showing us David is speaking, he's writing, but he's speaking of someone greater than himself, the future king of kings. Verse 36, for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. And watch this next three words, and saw corruption. But I thought he wrote in Psalm 16 that he wouldn't see corruption. See, then you have to explain that and you explain it this way. David is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit about the future Christ who did not see corruption in his body. Not a single millisecond or a single ounce of Christ's body experienced decay or decomposition. He was in the tomb, yes, only three days, brought back to life. Let's keep reading. So Paul says this is who the psalm is about. God raised him up. He did not see corruption. So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, who is this man? It's not David, it's whom? Jesus. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, who's him? Say it with me. Jesus, not David. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What is that? That would be the natural question. What am I freed from then that I can't be freed from by the law? Here's the answer. Death. In fact, the law actually brings death. Did you know that? The wages of sin is what? Death. How do you find out you've sinned? You see the law. You realize, yikes, 
I didn't match up on that one. I went 56, it was 55. Rats. And you could extrapolate that list to sins we commit by nature and by choice. But the point is the law shows us our sin and then the penalty is death. So what is it then that the resurrection of Christ frees us from? Death. How does it do that? Because Christ was raised from the dead. So all who believe in him now and are alive in him, they will one day be raised as well. This is the point of Psalm 16. This is why Psalm 16 is pointing to Christ. It's speaking of the greater David, the future king of kings. So let's go back. Let's analyze Psalm 16, can we? Psalm chapter 16. And let's see what it tells us about Christ. Now, as you're turning, you're probably already there in Psalm 16. As you're there, I want to just kind of give you a heads up. After we explain these verses and see what they tell us about Christ, I want to ask you to kind of respond to this to the truths we see. So I want to give you a heads up now. There'll be a chance later to respond to what God's going to show us this morning. It it will seem difficult. It may take some boldness. But I believe God's word is exactly the kind that that gives us boldness to make the right kind of decision. Okay? Let's see what this would tell us about Christ. And and I've kind of dubbed this or termed this the, the dreadful triumphant grave because we're going to see that what he says about Christ does involve the grave. This is the preeminent resurrection passage of the Old Testament. Tucked inside this messianic psalm, affirmed by both Peter and Paul that it's speaking of Christ. What does it tell us about Christ and His resurrection? He begins in verse 9 with the word, therefore. This is the only time it's mentioned in this chapter. So here's what's happening, church. Watch this. This chapter is building to some kind of climax. Do you kind of sense it? We haven't read the whole chapter, but it has a, it's kind of driving to a, to a peak. There's an apex on the horizon. But watch this. It's not an apex in which uh, you would expect. The apex in 9 and 10 is really the issue of death. He talks about being abandoned. He talks about his soul being in Sheol. So why would he say therefore and then kind of talk about death? Because all the verses prior to this are all about life and goodness. You can kind of scan through there. God's his refuge. He has no good apart from God. The saints in the land are the excellent ones. There is delight. In fact, he says in verse 4 that those who run after other gods, they actually have multiplied sorrows. But those whom, uh, who believe in the Lord, that the Lord's their chosen portion. They have lines that follow for them in pleasant places. Speaking of the allotment of the land in Israel, the Lord gives countenance in the night, in the day. God's always before him. Everything in 1 through 8 is, wow, look how good God is. God is good in his character. God is good in his conduct. Both internally and and externally, God is good. So therefore, watch this church, watch this. Therefore, it must be that when I come to the very difficult part of my life, i.e. death, when I come to the doorway of death, God will still be good there. Because He can do nothing else but be good. This is why David would write, therefore, yeah, even When physically, the worst thing begins to happen. And in Christ's life, even when Golgotha took place and the tomb was the next step, even there, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. Yeah, why Why can we say that? Because God is inwardly, externally, in his character and conduct, always good. He can do nothing but good. So it must be that even in my darkest time, when I feel forsaken, I know that in the end, God will be faithful. It will be for good. This is so deeply rooted in David. 
And I love this part, that it affects his whole being. Look at these verses again. And we know that it affected Christ's whole being. He says in verse 9 that his heart was glad. That word's translated tongue in another translation. He says his whole being rejoices. It refers to kind of his psyche. Everything that made David, David. Like every bit of him rejoices. His tongue is glad. His heart is glad. His flesh was secure. His soul was not abandoned. Can I just say this to you? Every bit of David's physiology was all wrapped up in his theology. Amen to that. We live in a culture that does it backwards. We say, well, I feel badly, so it must be that God's not doing his job. Well, I am having a bad day, so God's not faithful. We, we take our feelings and our physiology, and then we build a theology on that. Man, that's a bad idea. Amen? But David here does the opposite. He lets every bit of his theology that God is good and will be good even in my darkest day affect every single bit of his physiology. That's the way to build a life. In fact, can I just say this to you in a somewhat of a humorous way? Back in verse 7, you see the word heart in the second portion there? It's actually the Hebrew word kidney. I mean, David felt his theology deep down. You know what I'm saying? In the bowel area, in the kidneys. And for Jews and Greeks in that culture, often when they would say, I love you with all my heart, they weren't speaking of what's pumping the blood. They were speaking a little below that. They were talking about, man, in the gut region where you feel stuff. You know what David's saying? Man, my whole being, everything about my organic body, its chemical processes, its anatomical parts. Man, all of my physiology is affected by this theology that Christ is coming and will be raised. And so he says, my soul is not abandoned to Sheol. I'll hold the Holy One will see corruption. Speaking of Christ, of course. But David finds some solace in this prophecy, in this promise. What is this theology that, that gives him such a reason to rejoice That makes him right. Therefore, when the day is dark, I know God is still good. What is this theology technically? It's verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. I think he's speaking there prophetically of those three hours on the cross when Jesus became sin for us. That was the moment Psalm 22.1 was realized. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for three hours, God did that as he made him, church, listen, as he, as God made Jesus to be sin for us. So that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he made him to be sin for us so that we who are sinful, could be the righteousness of God. That's what happened in those three hours. But it was only three hours. God did not leave him there. Whatever that place was, theologians disagree, commentaries have different opinions. The Bible seems to use the phrase, the lower parts of the earth. So wherever it was that Jesus descended to offer the sacrifice, and by the way, he didn't offer the sacrifice to Satan, He didn't buy you back from the devil. Jesus owes nothing to the devil. He made his sacrifice to God. And what would take you an eternity, an infinity to fill up, which is God's wrath. Think of this. Jesus did that in three hours for the entire universe, past, present, and future. 
You think that's a long time. I think that's a powerful death. That a holy God, the second person of the Trinity, would for three hours suspend himself between heaven and earth and be the sin sacrifice for us. And yet in just three hours, his holy, righteous character satisfied God the Father. And he said it's finished. And God did not abandon his son. He said it's finished. And so after that, his body's in the tomb. Wherever he went, of course, to proclaim freedom, that it was finished, liberty to the captives. Here's all we know. At some point, the Old Testament saints, man, they weren't held by this law anymore. They're ushered to God's presence. All of this happens because God did not abandon Jesus in Sheol, the place of the dead. He didn't let his body see corruption or the pit. God did not leave his son on the cross. He did not leave his body in the grave. Are you following this? So guess what? Because God did not abandon his son, God will not abandon his kids. You can be sure of that. So we see in these two verses, both the dreadful aspect of the grave, and yet the triumphant aspect. Can we just mention these briefly, to give some more color to these verses? Kind of what this messianic psalm says to us. It says there is a dreadful aspect to the grave. I mean, David doesn't deny it. Christ's life doesn't deny it. There is an actual thing called death. When your body quits working. Let me say to you, church, listen very carefully. This happened to Jesus. He literally, in space and time, historically and evidentially, died. He didn't just get weak, pass out, go to sleep. The swoon theory, the idea that he passed out and the grave was cool and it kind of resuscitated him. Yeah, baloney. The clear evidence is from the water and blood that, poured, that rushed out of his side, from the asphyxiation that comes from the crucifixion, historically, medically, Jesus died. And accompanying that was grief. There's a physical reality to the grave. It's called death, human death. And barring the return of the Lord, you all will experience it. Are you listening to me? Barring the return of the Lord. That's the qualifier here. Sure cessation of your body will happen unless the Lord returns. First Thessalonians 4 indicates there will be those who will be alive when the Lord returns. Maybe that'll be you. Paul thought it'd be him. It wasn't. It could be you. It could be me. But if not, your body one day will D-I-E. Say it with me. Die. It'll quit working. When that happens, those around you will be hurt. They'll be grieving. They'll be pain. I love the fact that in the Bible, nowhere is pain denied. Nowhere is death denied. It's simply defeated ultimately. So I need to be honest with you. This chapter, this psalm, it does paint a picture for us of a dreadful aspect of the grave. Unless the Lord comes back, we will at some point quit working. Sure cessation happens. Here's the triumphant aspect though. When that occurs, your soul will not be abandoned to hell. And your body will not see eternal corruption. It may go into a grave and it may for hundreds of years decompose and rot and decay. 
But guess what? It won't do that eternally. Why? Because Jesus didn't do it even for a second. And because the Father raised the Son by the power of the Spirit, He walked out of that tomb with a glorified body. That means that one day, even if you die physically, your body will be raised as well. All those who are in Christ are guaranteed a resurrection. Why? Because of Christ's resurrection. This is the triumphant aspect of the grave, what we call spiritual, eternal life. Say it like this, no corruption. So here's what we're saying, guys. Though you may die, you are not damned because of the resurrection. God's not going to abandon your soul. He's not going to leave your body in the pit. Why? Because he didn't abandon his son. Does that make sense? This is clear Easter theology. What God did for Jesus and prophesied through David about Christ he will do for every one of his children. And so that's why we say just kind of in a simple nutshell that the, the dreadful triumphant grave or you could call it the empty tomb. Notice how those are switched. In the first reference it's kind of like the negative than the positive. Dreadful triumphant. But if you say empty tomb it's kind of the positive than the negative. But can I say to you I don't think you can have one with the other. If there's a resurrection, there had to have been a death. But there's a resurrection, amen? So however you want to say it, understand this. The empty tomb, the dreadful triumphant grave, is the ultimate promise and evidence that though God's children walk through death's doorway, we will not rot under its judgment. Christ has risen. Hallelujah, church. You are not consigned, assigned, You will not end up rotting and paying for your sin. Why? Because Jesus already has. That's why it's imperative that you believe on the name of Christ. So you may be looking at a shadow of the valley of death. But if you're in Christ, you are not looking at the substance of death. You may be looking at sure cessation, but I promise you no corruption because of Christ. Yet death may be buzzing around your head, but it will not sting you lethally. It has a loud bark, but it has no ultimate bite. Why? Psalm 16, 9 and 10. For you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Praise the Lord for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now there's a qualifier here as well that I need to make sure you're aware of. It's really just a couple, three words. It kind of goes to what I'm going to ask you to think about in a minute. I'm going to ask you to respond. This promise, this confident surety is only for those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, in all kindness and clarity, let me just say to you, death's not a doorway for you. It is a doomsday. And you will, for an eternity, be paying for your own sin, which you will never pay for. An unholy person, like we are, by nature and by choice, we're sinful, can never appease a holy God. This is why the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is so important. He is God. He died in our place. 
And those who reject the Lord and do not believe in Him, they'll spend eternity trying to fill up the cup of God's wrath against their sin and they'll never, ever do it. Do you see why preaching the gospel matters eternally? Why it's so significant? Because God has provided a way out, an escape. He's provided a a relationship, forgiveness of sins. So I want to ask you a question. Do you believe the truth about Jesus Christ? If you do, you're comforted by this. You're like, Todd, this is this is glorious. This theology will affect my physiology. I'll rejoice my heart, my soul, my flesh, my tongue, even my kidneys. Yeah, I'm worshiping, man. Praise God. That's because you've believed this. And you know the death is a doorway. Is it painful? Yes. But it's not the end. It's not when you... It holds no authority over you. It's just the way you enter God's full, visible presence. But if you're not in Christ, this promise is out of your reach. And if death were to come knocking on your door, if the darkest day of your life physically shows up and you're not prepared spiritually, what will you do? This is why Jesus gave these words to two women named Mary and Martha. He wanted to comfort them with this same theology, this same truth. Here's what he told them, John 11. Look at this verse with me, would you? I'll read it from the screen with you. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And it's interesting. He used the word resurrection before he actually arose. So David prophesies of Christ. Jesus prophesies of himself. He tells Mary and Martha, I know your brother's dead, but don't worry, I'm the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. There's that triumphant Dreadful aspect there. Yeah, we may die physically, our body will quit working, but guess what? We're actually going to live. He made this promise to those two ladies about their brother. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked an important question. Say it with me. Do you believe this? I ask you this morning, do you believe this? That Jesus Christ is the resurrection. That what David prophesied was not really about him, David. It was about Jesus. God fulfilled it a little less than 2,000 years ago. And now all who believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are guaranteed they will never die. You will never see eternal corruption either. You won't be left in the pit. You want to pay for your sin because Christ has done it. So Paul would later in 1 Corinthians 15 say this to those believers. More comforting same theology, same truth, Psalm, 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, John. Here's what Paul said to this church. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So something's going to happen to our bodies. Something's going to happen when we die. He says, In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, the last trumpet, when Christ comes back, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. Wow, we're going to be raised? Yes, because Christ was raised. God did not abandon His Son. He will not abandon His kids. You are guaranteed a resurrection because of Christ's resurrection. Here Paul states the very same thing. We'll be raised imperishable. We shall all be changed. He talks about the perishable, putting on the imperishable, the mortal, the immortality. That's the whole idea of a new body, the resurrection. When this happens, to come to pass the saying that's written, that death is swallowed up in victory. So Paul now kind of chants at death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? 
He says the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through, say it with me, our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, you actually will know the sting of death. You'll know the power of sin. You'll know death's defeat. You will know the doomsday when it comes knocking your door. But if you're in Jesus Christ, is there a reality of death to some degree? Yes, it's initial, it's temporary, it's painful. But it is not eternal. And you will not be corrupted. Your body will be changed. The real key is, are you in Christ? Do you believe this? So can I ask you this morning? Do you believe this? I gave you a heads up a little while ago. I was going to ask you to do something difficult, kind of hard. We're at that time now. And I just want to ask you just a real point blank question. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? That he died and that he was resurrected. And that all who now put their faith in that message, it's called the gospel, will also never die but live eternally with God. Do you believe that? You see, I'm talking to three groups of people here this morning. Those who right now have said, yes, Todd, I've done that. You're sure you're a believer. Amen. Hallelujah. You can probably spot a time or a place or a location or a season. There's something in your life you can kind of go back to to a certain degree and say, yes, I know God has saved me. Then there are those who aren't sure. You're not sure. You're wondering right now. And then there are those who you're sure you're not. You're like, I've never believed that. In fact, I'm one of those persons, Todd, I walked in, I thought maybe I came here accidentally, I wasn't sure why, but now I see. Because if that's the message that I need to hear, if that's the truth about Jesus, and the truth about Jesus then saves me this morning, I want to believe this. That's all I ask you this morning. If you're in that third group, you're sure you're not, would you this morning... Just cry out and ask God to save you. Would you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says in Romans 10 that when that occurs, when we believe in our heart that Jesus is God and confess with our mouth that he was raised from the dead, the Bible says that that's when God saves people. From what? From death's damnation. From hell. From sin. That's where the promise of future resurrection comes in. We believe in Christ. We're in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all who are in Him will never die. The key action is to be in Christ. So would you this morning believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ?